Praise the Lord. About a month and a half ago, we suspended our series, which was called Letting People See Jesus, because we had so many other things that we were talking about and, and good things to speak about. And we're getting back to that. And the very next story in the life of Jesus is about Jesus going into a, a village called Nain and raising a, a widow's son who died. And then he goes on to talk about John the Baptist. And I want to talk about that today. But the, the theme of the talk, or the title if you like, is three different types of churchgoers. Three different types of churchgoers. Have you, have you ever noticed that there's different categories of churchgoers? We all know the, the nod to God type of people. The people who go, I've heard them called CEOs. Christmas, Easter only churchgoers. Or else funeral and wedding churchgoers. You know, people boast, I haven't darkened the door of a church except for funerals and weddings. It's that kind of a person. That's the first category. The second category are people who go to church and they're committed and they're religious and they're fervent and they try hard, but they're missing a key ingredient. And I'm really excited to share that with you today. And then the third category are people, actually the Bible says we can be like Jesus. Even though we are just normal humans in jars of clay, we're just fragile humans, actually Jesus can shine through us in such a powerful way that the world sees Jesus through our church. And that's the kind of church that I'm going to talk about today that we can be. So three categories of churches. And I came across a funny story about a lady who was a churchgoer. Well, yeah, she was a churchgoer and... Uh, actually, I'm not sure she was a churchgoer, but the guy who got her letter wasn't, and it's just a, it's just a funny story. So this lady was old-fashioned. She wanted to go camping in France, and she wanted to know if uh, there was a toilet there, and she didn't want, because she was a polite old lady, she didn't want to say the word toilet, and she was struggling to think of the word to say, so eventually she was going to call it a bathroom commode, and then she just thought, no, that's even a little bit weird, so let me just abbreviated to BC. And so she wrote a letter to the man at the campground and said, does the campground have its own BC? Well, the campground owner wasn't old-fashioned at all. And when he got the letter, he couldn't figure out what the lady was talking about. BC really stumped him. After worrying about it for several days, he showed the letter to other campers, but they couldn't figure out what the lady meant either. The campground owner finally came to the conclusion that the lady was and must be asking about the location of the local Baptist church. So he sat down and wrote the following reply. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campsite <laughs> and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it is quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago. <laughs> and it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time we were there. It may interest you to know that right now there is a supper plan to raise money and buy more seats. They plan to hold the supper in the middle of the BC so everyone can watch and talk about this great event. I'd like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but it is surely not for lack of desire on my part. As we grow older, it seems to be more and more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. <laughs> if you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time you go, sit with you and introduce you to all the other folks. 
this really is a very friendly community. So, so we're talking about different types of churchgoers. And I'd like to read from Luke chapter 7. And we're reading from verse 11. Quite a lot of scripture to be read today. Follow with me in your Bible if you'd like to. Luke chapter 7 verse 11. Now it happened the day after that, that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. So imagine the scene. Jesus is walking with a large crowd And these are excited people who've seen the miracles that he's done. They're full of faith and fervor. And they're walking into this little village called Nain. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. I can't help but notice the amazing contrast here. There's a large crowd going into the city, and in the middle of it, is the only son of his father who's full of life. And there's a large crowd coming out of the city, and in the middle of it is the only son of a widow, and he's dead. Verse 13, When the Lord saw her, that's the widow, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he, that's Jesus, presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John, the Baptist, reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Quite a strange answer. (laughs) John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who had announced Jesus, said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, are you really the one? Jesus doesn't say, yes, I'm the one. He says, go and tell him what you see, all these miracles and and what's happening. And don't be offended by me. Interesting that. Right, let's go to the next bit. Verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, listen to this, what he says about John the Baptist. For I say to you that among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Wow. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What's going on here? What's this passage about? Well, first of all, I'd like to just talk about the nod to God crowd, the people, the CEOs, Christmas Easter only Christians, people who go to church every now and again. You know, we're told that 98% of the world's population believe in God. Isn't that an amazing statistic? 98% of human beings say, yes, there is a God. And yet we know that narrow is the gate and very few find it to life. Even though 98% of people say, yes, there's a God, very few actually find God. Because, uh, 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 what's it called? Mental assent. Because saying yes with my head (laughs) isn't enough. In James chapter 2, it says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. It's not enough just to say, yes, there's a God. But there's a large crowd, millions, multiplied millions around us, who go to church every now and again and say, yes, there's a God. And because they're part of a family who are Christian or a nation who are Christian, or because they got christened when they were a child, they think that they're in God's kingdom. And they're not. And it's tragic. You know, when Princess Diana died at her funeral, I watched it on TV, as I'm sure most of you did. And the priest who was taking the funeral says, and now, he was just reading the words of the liturgy, and now she's going to heaven. And I just thought, oh. Everyone who watches that thinks you just go to heaven because you got buried in a church. And it's just not true. And this picture of Jesus coming into the city of Nain with his large crowd of excited, way, praise the Lord people, and meeting this crowd coming out of Nain with the dead boy in the middle. There's a widow and her only son has died. Can you imagine the tragedy of this lady's life? Her husband died, now her son has died, she's got nothing left, and all she's got is this funeral procession of people who probably don't even know her that well. But they're all wailing and crying as they did in those days. And they're going through the motions of, a, of a, a ritual, of a funeral. Right, we have to say these words. We have to go and bury him. We hope, oh, I hope he goes to heaven kind of thing. And these two worlds collide. Bang! And when the real life of Jesus collides with this world of religiosity, something happens. And the men have to make a decision. Jesus goes up to the coffin and he touches it and he stops them. And the men stopped. They could have just ignored him. I mean, this, this man, Jesus, comes up. They could have just walked on and just ignored him. But they stopped. And then Jesus says to the widow, don't, don't worry. Don't, don't be sad. Amazing. Amazing words. Don't be sad. And then he says to the young man, get up. 
And the young man gets up. He comes alive again. Life comes. And then Jesus takes this alive man. And it's the most beautiful verse in the story. It says he presented him to his mother. Can you imagine that? He gives him, this boy who was dead, he gives him back to this mother who'd lost everything. What, what is this picture? It's a picture of how the, the world, the, the normal church-going religious world, have completely lost the plot. First of all, they're going the wrong direction. They're not going the way Jesus is going. They're full of ritual and you know, just going through the motions without any idea why they do it. I remember standing, I went to a boarding school that was a, a Christian, a religious boarding school, and yet nobody there was Christian. The, the um, priest, what was he called? The chaplain, was a known drunkard. I mean, everybody knew, that's all he did. And he would stand up and just talk about the Bible, and everyone would fall asleep in the pews. In fact, most of the boys would get under the pews and, and sleep under the pews during church. It was just dead, dead, dead. And I remember once we were standing there and we were singing and I had just become born again. The real life of God was in me. And we're standing there among 600 boys and they're singing, uh, He Who Would Valiant Be. And the words go, Hobgoblins and foul fiends. And I'm thinking, what on earth am I singing? What is this all about? And I'm looking around and everyone else is singing it as if it's normal to be saying hobgoblins and foul fiends. It's just meaningless garbage. It's religious rubbish. And there's all these people just like robots walking into hell thinking they're Christians because they're part of some religious ceremony. And one of the teachers, I was singing and I had a hand in my pocket. And one of the teachers came up and slapped me over the back of the head because you were allowed to do that in those days to pupils. And he says, have some respect for God. Take your hand out of your pocket. And I remember thinking, what hypocrisy and weirdness is this? Nobody in this room believes in God. I'm the only one who does and I've got my hand in my pocket and now I must take my hand out of my pocket. It's just stupid. As you'll realize... I have a passionate hatred for religion. Because it stops people finding Jesus. It's not just a nice alternative. It's, stop, it's like getting vaccinated. You know when you get a vaccination against a disease? You just get a little bit, enough of that disease that you don't get the real thing. People have been vaccinated against Christianity because they've had a little bit of religion and they think they're going to heaven. And it's disgusting. It's, it's a big problem. <laughs> We've just got to fight against it. It's not something we just tolerate. We fight against religion. It's not good. Anyway, Jesus comes and he meets this scene and they respond correctly and he brings life where there was death. He brings purpose and hope where there was just meaningless confusion. And then he takes this newly alive boy and he puts him back in that world. He gives him back to the mother as if to say, now boy, you bring life wherever you go. So that's the first type of churchgoer is the scene of Jesus meeting this funeral, this death march with all its associated noise and pomp. But actually at the middle of it is just death. That's the first type of church go. And my message, 
I don't think anyone in this room is in that situation because you wouldn't be in our church if you were. It's, it's a bit hard to be religious in this church. But somebody listening on the podcast or something might be listening to this. Get out. Get out of it. It's not good. Find real life. Find Jesus. Religion will not save you. 98% of the world's population believe in God and they're not going to heaven. You've got to find the real Jesus. Please. Please. You've been inoculated against something. Get the real disease called Christianity. Get Jesus. Amen. The second category is exemplified by John the Baptist. And I know I'm going to shock a few people here. John the Baptist was an awesome guy. So John announced Jesus. He was, Jesus says he was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Think about that for a moment. He was greater than Elijah. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos. You name all the great prophets in the Old Testament. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet ever. Astounding. Amazing. He was also Jesus' cousin. They knew each other. And when Jesus came down to be baptized at the Jordan River, John the Baptist said that God told me, the one that I see the Spirit coming down on and remaining on, he is the Messiah, and you must announce him to the world. And so when he came, Jesus came down, John said, I saw the Spirit coming down on him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had heard from God. He knew that this was the Messiah. But Jesus said something amazing. Jesus said, among those born of women, there's no greater prophet than him. But then he said, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Now, just let your mind get blown by that statement for a second there. The most backslidden, weak, failed Christian who goes to church hardly ever, who has no gifts or abilities to speak of, who hardly contributes anything to God, but the one who is truly born again, who has God's Spirit in him, is greater than the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. How does that make your mind feel? For me, just a whole lot of misconceptions just start exploding in my head. The first one is, oh, well, I can just read the Old Testament and the New Testament and they're the same. They're not the same. The whole of the Old Testament is so far inferior to the New Testament that we, whenever we read something in the Old Testament, we must think, whoa, I need to look at this through the lens of the New Testament. Because every, even the greatest prophet in the Old Testament is nothing compared to the least saint in the kingdom of God in the New Testament. There is a massive difference. When you read something in the Old Testament, you know what really upsets me? is when people just quote verses from the Old Testament, uh, next to verses from the New Testament, and just think that they're exactly the same. And they have the same power and the same meaning and the same weight. They don't. Let me clarify. This is the Word of God from beginning to end. All Scripture is God-breathed. But it's a progressive revelation 
the bits that come at the end are more important than the bits that come at the beginning, and they explain the bits that come at the beginning. When you read a, a verse in the Old Testament, you know, it's so common for people to find a verse and pick it and say, that verse means this, and I'm going to build my life on it. But you've got to read it through the New Testament. If you don't, you, you've got a squiff, you've got a wrong view of what's really true. It's so important. You know, the book of Job... People love to quote from the book of Job. And yet at the end of the book of Job, God says, everything these guys have said is wrong. Did you know that? At the end of the book of Job, God, God pitches up and he says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? He says, everything these guys have said is wrong. So anyone who quotes from the book of Job without taking into account what God said at the end has got it wrong. Isn't that interesting? And the whole Bible is like that. And Jesus said, something massive has changed from the Old Testament to the New. Something uh, enormous. The, the shift is so large and so big that you can't really live in both covenants. It's one or the other. It's a massive change from Old Testament to New. The whole world has changed. Now... John the Baptist was good, he was fervent, he obeyed God, he was zealous, he heard from God, and he preached, and he did everything he had to do, but Jesus says that he wasn't in the same category as those who have the Spirit of God remaining in them. Now, I'm going to just try and clarify a bit of a problem with this, because if you know the Bible, you'll say to me, ah, Greg, the Bible says that John the Baptist would have been filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. The problem was, the Spirit didn't remain on him. In the Old Testament, people were filled with the Spirit. There's Bezalel in the Old Testament. When, when, they, were, oops, when they were building... It's just gone off. When they were building the temple, Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to build the temple. There was Samson who was filled with the Spirit to be able to rip Philistines upon. There were different people who were filled with the Spirit. Saul, the king, was filled with the Spirit and lay and prophesied naked for a day and a half. And David was filled with the Spirit. But the Spirit didn't remain on them. He came and he left. And so that's why in Psalm 51, David says, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Do you remember that? In the New Testament, John the Baptist was told, when you see the Spirit come on someone and remain on him, that is the Messiah. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit remains in us. And the difference is enormous. <laughs> it's enormous. Now you say to me, Craig, is this really relevant? Are there really people like John the Baptist today in church? Are there people who are serving God, who are obeying, who are trying to live by the laws and the rules and doing all the right things, but they're not, they're not filled with the Spirit? Are there people like that in church today? <laughs> yes, they are. They really are. I don't have time to read it now. I was going to read it. But in Acts chapter 18 and 19, Paul goes to a city called Ephesus and he meets 
Okay, I'm going to read it. He meets 12 disciples. Acts chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now there were 12 men in all. Paul goes to this place called Ephesus. He meets 12 people. And we, if we read the verses just before that, at the end of chapter 18, it tells us about a man called Apollos who was fervent in spirit, and there's a capital S, and that he taught about Jesus. The NIV, the New King James says he taught about the Lord accurately. The NIV says he taught about Jesus accurately. But he only knew the baptism of John. Which means that these 12 disciples had learned from Apollos about Jesus accurately, but they only knew about John's baptism. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit in filling. And they were living in a kind of an old, a mixture of Old Testament and New Testament. They were obeying laws. They were trying to be religious and good, but they didn't have the power of the Spirit in them to enable them to live good. I believe much of the church is in this situation today. Much. I believe there are thousands, millions of Christians who are trying to live good and go to church and say all the right things and do all the right things, but they don't have the power of the Spirit in them to enable them to do it. And as a result, they're like John. You know what John was like? He was confused. He said, are you really the one who's coming or should we expect another? confused. What, what is, is this God's will? Isn't it God's will? Should I, did God say that? Didn't he say that? Oh, well, how do I hear from God? The reason is you need to get filled with the Spirit. <laughs> if you're confused and wavering and oh, I don't know, is it, what's going on? What's going on? Get filled with the Spirit. You get a power in you. The other thing is we get offended if we're not filled with the Spirit. We get offended if we are filled with the Spirit. But you get more offended if you're not filled with the Spirit. John the Baptist was offended at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus wasn't fulfilling the expectations that John had. John thought Jesus was going to destroy the Romans, set John free from prison, and set up an earthly kingdom. And when, the, when John's disciples said to Jesus, Are you the one? Jesus said, He, he knew what John was asking. And he said, look, I'm setting people free from the devil, not from the Romans. I'm healing them. I'm raising them from the dead. I'm casting out demons. And the poor are getting the gospel preached to them. People who are poor, when they hear the gospel, it brings them out of poverty. Jesus was saying, look, it's a spiritual thing first. Those other things come later. But people who are not filled with the Spirit focus on earthly things. Social work. Let's, you know, it's good to help the needy and the poor and the sick. That's definitely good. 
But first comes spiritual salvation. And if you're not, if you're in the John the Baptist place, you'll put social and earthly things before spiritual things, and you'll get offended all the time. You'll say, why is he not doing more for that poor person and that poor person and that poor person? Jesus says, the, the person who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And I want to just close now by saying the amazing message of this story is that the very least person can be the greatest. Just think about this for a second. What did that dead boy have to offer? What did he have to offer? Did he have a whole pedigree of good works, of knowledge of the Bible, of attendance at church, of being a good Christian? No, he was dead. He had nothing to offer. If you have nothing to offer, you're a candidate for this. Secondly, Jesus said, He who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on the spirit inside of you. You can be nothing. You can have no physical abilities. You can have a terrible track record. You can have been a sinner, the worst of sinners. And yet when God's spirit fills you, the Bible says we become like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Uh, says, He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 5 says, As Jesus is, so are we in this world. When uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 says, If anyone unites himself with the Lord, he becomes one spirit with him. Whoever you are, the least of the least, if God's Spirit comes in you, you become mighty like Jesus. You are seated in heavenly places, far above all rule and dominion. What do I have to do to get this? Well, I have to give up the idea of being a good person, that I have to obey a whole lot of rules and regulations and laws and, and try to work my way up like the Old Testament was. No, it's just a simple gift. I just say, Lord... I want to receive it. Lord, I'm like a dead man lying in a funeral pyre. Lord, please, would you just raise me up from the dead? There's an amazing verse in Luke 11, 11. Jesus says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a stone? If he asks for a bread, will give him a snake or a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. The only requirement is not goodness, it's not maturity, it's not cleverness, it's not righteousness, it's just saying, Daddy, please. Isn't that amazing? And when you do that, the Spirit comes into you and you become greater than the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Boy, that fills me with awe. I'm greater than Elijah. I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than Abraham. Why? Not because of me. His spirit in me. I can do greater things even than Jesus, Jesus said. He said, you will do greater things than me. Because I go to my Father. Shall we stand together, folks?
just focus on the Lord. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're as alive today as you were that day that we just read about. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you look on us with those same eyes of love and power and compassion as you looked on them. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your offer of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God is still valid for us today. Jesus, I want it. Lord Jesus, I don't want to be dead in old-fashioned religion. I don't want to be dead in trying to do it in my own strength. Lord, I need the power of your Spirit in me. Lord, I need the power of your Spirit in me. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today and all those who are hearing these words, wherever they are in the world. Lord, I pray that today, today, many people would move out of the category of John the Baptist religiousness and move into the category of Holy Spirit-empowered kingdom of God. I pray for that today, Lord. Just like those 12 men in Ephesus, I pray, Lord, we would move out of that old way of doing things into the power of the Spirit today. Friends, I'm going to ask you just to focus on the Lord, reach out to Him right now, open your heart and your mind to the Lord, and say, Lord, Daddy, fill me with your Spirit right now, please. Just while the music plays, let's just call out to Him. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you said that if we ask, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're asking today. Daddy, we're coming to you. We're not asking for bread. We're not asking for fish. We're asking for the Holy Spirit. Father God, please, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Even now, Lord, even while I'm standing right here in this place, Holy Spirit, change me. Fill me. Make me brand new. Make me a New Testament Christian. Fill me with the power of the kingdom of God, Lord.